Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. My guest today is Edward Woodford, the CEO and co-founder of ZeroHash. ZeroHash built software that allows businesses to launch crypto products quickly, simply, and compliantly. This is Edward's second startup, and we start with this backstory before exploring crypto's major use cases like payments, tokenizations, remittances, and payroll. We also cover the U.S. regulatory landscape, his take on the ecosystem today, and more. Please enjoy this conversation with Edward Woodford. So, Edward, I'm excited to talk about Zero Hash and the intersection of fintech, crypto, actually bringing it to the institutional markets. I think a fun place to start would be when people look at heavily regulated industries, it usually makes people less excited. And I'm super curious to find out what gave a 20-year-old the idea to go run at the CFTC to start a company and now enter an even heavier regulated industry. Yeah. So I was just a fraction over 20 when I founded my first business. But for me, it was a space where there was a natural barrier to entry, which was the regulatory piece. And also, we were at this interesting intersection between emerging markets, degree of controversy around some of them, plus regulation. And a lot of people self-select out more from the, I would say, newness of markets as opposed to the regulatory piece. I would say the big lesson that I learned from my first business, which we were able to sell and actually went on to do something quite interesting with. But the biggest lesson for me was that regulation is a necessary condition for success, not a sufficient condition. And at that point, I was so hyper-focused on regulated. When we got to the start line, which was get approval, and you spend a lot of money, it's a very high fixed cost business, you realize, wow, there's a lot to be done there. And that actually inspired Zero Hash because we take away a lot of the complexity about getting to market. We are the regulated entity. And so for me, there were some good lessons from actually entering that space. But I love regulated markets. I think they're really, really interesting. You've got to do interesting things with different regulators. And you've got to get these intersections of technology, regulation, business, all in one. Why don't you give us a thumbnail sketch of what Zero Hash does, and then we can dive into why going after a regulated market excites you when most people would run the opposite direction. Yeah, so we call ourselves infrastructure for the future. And what we mean by that is that we provide the APIs and SDKs to allow any business to embed digital assets natively within their own infrastructure. Our view is that crypto is a technology not an asset class. It certainly is an asset, but it doesn't equate one-to-one with an asset class. And by that, we mean that we want to provide infrastructure for a whole host of different businesses. Today, we power, for example, some of the leading brokerage platforms, such as Interactive Brokers. We power some of the largest payment platforms, such as Stripe and Shift4. We power remittance platforms that are leveraging crypto as a means of transfer 
for cross-border payments. We even power payroll companies. We power groups that are doing tokenization. So we're a B2B2C business that enables groups to embed digital assets within their own infrastructure. Two years ago, we raised our Series D. We're about 150 people based globally. And we're just really, really excited to continue to, we think, speed the adoption of cryptography as a technology across a range of industry and businesses. And how are you structured? Are you a custodian? Are you a brokerage firm? Are you a bank? What is ZeroHash as an entity? Yeah. So from a functional perspective, if you think of, for example, an interactive brokers where if you opened up an account for crypto, you're actually opening up an account with zero hash. So we know who you are, you're signing our user agreement. We are then when you go to buy a Bitcoin, for example, you're buying that from zero hash. And then if you go to look at your account balance, zero hash is storing and it's the custodian of those crypto assets. Then you wish to, for example, send that Bitcoin somewhere. Zero hash is the one that is actually interacting with the blockchain. So we are really the end-to-end suite, the full-stack solution that is taking on both the technological challenge, but also the regulatory challenge. We're the regulated entity. So in the US, and we're a global business now, with entities in Brazil, the UK, Europe. But in the US, we're a money transmitter, effectively in every state. And we also hold a bit license with the state of New York. And so that allows us to do all of those functional things that I discussed in that particular use case of a brokerage business. You mentioned 150 people. When you think about those different roles, how much is legal regulatory focus to stand up the business versus engineer versus other? Yeah, so the largest team in the business is tech, and then it's followed by legal and compliance. So we have about 25 people in legal and compliance. So it's a high percentage as a firm. Look, I like to talk about our chief legal officer. He's one of the founding team members of the company. His role is to enable the business, right? It's how do you get to yes? How do you do this in a compliant way? And ultimately, I think when we make business decisions, if you're familiar with the Sharpe ratio in terms of how you actually quantify returns based on risk, I never thought of it in this way, but from inception in regulated businesses, you have to make that trade-off. What is the revenue potential versus what is the relative risk? Often, it's not a yes or no answer. There are clearly yes or no answers. Can you send crypto to an OFAC-listed address? Of course not. That is egregious. That is a clear no. So there's clear no-nos in sorts of our business. But then there's a lot of, what is the risk profile? What does that mean from a regulatory perspective? What is the overhead to actually support that in order to do that in a compliant manner? And so I like to think of risk decisions or revenue decisions or new business decisions and go-to-market in terms of what does the risk profile look like? And that's one of the reasons why you just think about the last year, we've seen a lot of different changes and blow-ups. For me, inherently, the lending market didn't make any sense. And our team were like, yeah, this makes no sense, just instinctively. So we didn't do any of that. And that's what caused a lot of downfall. Another example, Chinese exchanges, Binance. It didn't make sense for us to work with Binance. We said, look, this is not a long-term sustainable business. So trying to take out that initial revenue opportunity and look at it, what does it mean for the next five years of the business? And really taking that view in terms of how we approach new businesses. How do you think of regulatory jurisdiction? So I'm in the US and there's a lot of talk about crypto companies that are no longer want to be domiciled here. They want to close up shop and open up in the UAE or even move to Europe where there might be more favorable regulation. How do you think about the jurisdictional regulation for different companies? Yeah, look, it's not the first time it's been said, but if you look at this infrastructure as a technology, and it is ultimately technology, does the US want to be a place where this technology is grown in a sustainable and good manner? And I think that's really the key point. If you actually look at a lot of the debate in the US right now, 
It's about jurisdiction versus fundamentals. What are you actually trying to protect? And I think that's where the UK, for example, and Europe have been particularly strong. They're saying what we care about is ensuring that you know your customer effectively. There's strong controls around AML and things like how you implement the travel rule and other pieces. And then there's customer protection and how you promote to customers. Those are the core tenets. And often regulators get caught up in, this is my jurisdiction and not. And that's because in the US, you have this relatively unique construct where you have the CFTC and SEC. And I think the core is to go back to what are you trying to achieve with regulation? What are you trying to achieve with enforcement? And going back to those first principles. I do think, and we've got a good relationship with regulators in the US, and that's where I'm based and plan to continue to be based as a business, as a headquarters. But we are a global business and we do have options. I think the key thing in the US is the gap around regulation is being filled by rulemaking of agencies. So you look at, for example, without getting too technical, Saab 121. There was a rule that the SEC put out earlier this year. Actually, the General Accountability Office of the US government actually said that rule overstepped. Now, the weird thing around the US, and it's very nuanced, is that when that GAO says there was a rule, it actually gives Congress the ability to overturn that rule. Now, my view is that it should work the other way. If an agency is overstepped, that rule stays into effect for, say, 120, 240 days, and then Congress can make that rule. But what Saab 121 did is that it, for example, if you look at what happened in the last four weeks, for example, Stash, which is a broker-dealer, stepped away from crypto because of their interpretation of how Saab 121 would impact their capital on their brokerage business. That is not a law. It is a rule that the government itself has said is overstepped. Secondly, if you look at the OCC, And the Fed, if you look at why, for example, Charles Schwab or Morgan Stanley E-Trade haven't stepped into crypto, it's because they're bank holding companies. And then there's rules around bank holding companies and there's capital rules and there's a lot of implicit do not do that. If you look at, for example, what happened just earlier this week, SoFi stepped out of the crypto business. They actually had a great product and they stepped away. And the reason for that is that they've become a bank. And the overhead, the complexity with the regulator basically has forced them to divest that crypto business. I do think that that both of those are solvable. And we've done a lot of work with different partners in the brokerage space and actually other bank holding companies. But what it does do is that it raises the bar. Is this profitable for us? And I think that's the critical point is that right now in the US, the biggest impact that is driving crypto out of well-capitalized, regulated, trusted businesses, you're actually moving them out of that infrastructure. That doesn't seem to achieve the results that you're trying to achieve from a regulation perspective, which is good KYC, good AML, and good customer protection. And I think that's the issue that you have in the US right now. It's an interesting point because it feels like what's happening is it's being treated like it's systemically risky. The reason why you don't want it in your bank is that if there's a blow up in crypto, you don't want it to hurt what they consider their traditional business. So they'd rather it be separate and taken out of those entities. I hear what you're saying. But is there a counter argument that that makes sense for these to be standalone? Of course, it's a good counterpoint. But my argument would be, if you look at sub-121, it's around safeguarding customer assets. Why don't you treat cyber risk the same? Why don't you have to recognize the degree of cyber risk on your books? What about customer PII? There's inherently risk in every single business line that you do, even if you're the most mundane business. So I think that the rules aren't being applied equally and fairly. Also, I think the burden of proof is around why it is a systemic risk. I think, for example, Coinbase has put out an excellent report recently around use of crypto in the United States. You've got tens of millions of persons holding crypto. 
What about customer protection customer and preventing customer harm of those customers? What about pink sheet trading? So I think it's a fine narrative. But then if you take the application of SAB 121 to the nth degree, it really can apply to anything and every risk that a business has and how they have to recognize that and capitalize that risk on their balance sheet. It's impossible. So I think it's about applicability of that point. Explain to me a bit about people always talk about institutional adoption. I think the main focus for everybody has been the ETF. And I'm happy to talk about it because everyone has an opinion about it. But one of the reasons why I was looking forward to talk to you is that you're working with real multinational companies on real problems. And I want to walk through the different types of clients you have, the problems that you're solving for them. This is one of the real things that we're very focused on is around utility and use cases. We as a business are powering payments for some of the largest institutions that are tokenizing assets. If you look at, for example, what Larry Fink said about tokenization, this is real. But if you tokenize, you need a payment mechanism and a bridge. We're providing that. If you look at, for example, how do you pay people internationally in places around the world where potentially their currency isn't as secure as the US dollar? So thinking about payments and payroll. If you look at remittances, lowering the cost of doing business internationally, we're working with large remittance platforms. And then if you look at, for example, payments, whether you're a big believer in Web3, you need a payments mechanism. And I sometimes I use the analogy of, hey, versus an emerging region where you have to provide connectivity. In some ways, it's, without being verbose, it's almost like a new world. We're working on use cases with, for example, large multinational brands that have businesses around the world, and it's particularly challenging to get paid in that region. And so how do you do that? And so we're very, very hyper-focused on utility, natural application of use stories. And I think that's something that the industry has to be better at, is actually explaining the value of cryptography as a technology. And there's a lot that can be done and a lot that can actually be disrupted in a really positive way around the world. Before we started recording, you were telling me a story about Shift 4 and Starlink. And I think that is an interesting place to start of the different business lines. Starlink is an incredible company that is trying to offer a global product. What are some challenges that they're facing where they're using crypto as a solution? Yeah, so Shift 4 is a partner of ours. They're a publicly listed multi-billion dollar business. And the founder there has a really incredible story. There's a Netflix documentary on him. I think he was the first civilian person to actually be commander of a space rocket. So him and Elon Musk are very, very close. And it's an interesting story. So to be clear, Starlink is not currently a customer of ours. And I can't go into details around Shift 4. But I think it's a useful explanation as to why sometimes crypto is particularly helpful. So Starlink, as you said, I'm sat here in Chicago. I don't need Starlink right now. But if you're in the middle of Alaska, we have somebody in the middle of Alaska who works at ZeroHash. He uses Starlink, right? If you think about parts of the world that don't have great connectivity, Starlink is an incredible tool. And we've seen that time and time again. Now, I don't want to belittle what it means to send rockets to space. But actually, if you dive into the details of how difficult it is to get paid in, I would say, more frontier markets, how does Starlink think about getting paid? And that's actually a problem that I think multinational businesses need to think about. If you're a SaaS business, right, how do you get paid if you're expanding into a new region? If you're, for example, Netflix, and you have customers in Argentina, for example, a lot of those customers don't want to pay in their local currency. So how do they get paid? Also, you're losing a lot of value there. I think frontier markets is a really interesting application. And I think Starlink is one example of a potential use case of crypto 
because payments is not a solved function in a large part of the world. And actually creating that international connectivity, almost being described as a layer of layers, right? Or a network of networks. For example, in Brazil, you have a PIX network, real time. But then if you want to move money from Brazil to Australia, which also has real time payments network, how does that work? So I think there's so many interesting use cases that allow accessibility for people. Payments is not a solved problem in large parts of the world. I think that's really important to recognize. And I don't know if this is an unsolved issue or how much time you've thought about this, but when I think about payments, people will say, okay, you're right. In the US, I can have a Visa card or PayPal or I have a list of apps of how to send money six different ways. In an emerging market or even a frontier market where you started building, how do you close the loop between that person had to get money to pay for Starlink, whether they have a bank account or not, there's some sort of real economy currently is held together by the banking system versus that's great, you created a new rail, but how do we connect back to the real economy? Yeah, look, crypto has to coexist with the existing system. It is an enhancement. I think of crypto as an alternative payment mechanism, really, really good one. One that is can be exceptionally cheap, not reversible, right? This is one of the huge issues of payments is reversibility at more levels of transactions in the US, for example. It can interact with programmable infrastructure, right? So interactions with smart contracts. So that's a really, really powerful thing. What I mean by that is if you're in, I don't know, Georgia, for example, how well connected is Georgia into other parts of the world in terms of payments? If you think of certain parts of Africa, if you think of certain parts of LATAM, if you have a payment in company, believe that they will have payment rails that will allow, for example, Netflix, Starlink, think of any multinational business that effectively is a global brand, a global business. How will they actually access that? And I think that's really the piece. But of course, you need on both sides of that interactions with the international financial landscape. I think what's been interesting, a little bit of a tangent, but if you look at, for example, USDC, USDC for me is an alternative payment mechanism. I think for a long time, people viewed it as a store of value. I think there's certainly a story for certain parts of the world where USDC maybe is a store of value. But with USDC, there are things that you're trading off by holding USDC right now. You're not earning interest and you're not FDIC insured amongst other things. But think how powerful USDC is as a mechanism with those three key pillars that I identified earlier, which is programmability, irreversibility, and the ability to send money really cheaply. USDC should be viewed more as an alternative payment mechanism that is really, really effective for certain use cases. But to most people, they actually want to hold USD, for example, at the end of the day. So your point is about on-ramping, off-ramping, and viewing it more as a network mechanism, at least that's my view, as a fundamental, we tear up what we have today. It makes all the sense in the world. I think that anyone who's used it, if you use USCC and you move money around or you pay something, it's remarkable how simple, fast, and easy it is. But it also always feels to me like you have this, something you've mentioned before, is the regulation that might be self-selecting that gives you an opportunity is a moat. But Mm -hmm. that moat is currently owned by some of the most powerful entities on the planet that make Mm -hmm. a lot of money on the existing payment system. So yes, it's a huge opportunity but also a tremendous regulatory battle to figure out who will win that one. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to tokenized assets because I think that's a super interesting one. People talk about real-world assets or RWA, and I think that for me, it's one of the topics that traditional finance was always the most interested in. There was never a question over how arcane trading and settlement of securities is today, especially in anything outside of equity. So I come from the fixed income markets where it's extremely arcane to settle and trade. That's not really disputed. And this is where you got some of these silly 
memes of I like blockchains, but I don't like crypto. They loved what was happening, but they didn't want to be associated with other parts of crypto. How are you working on tokenizing assets and attacking this problem? Yeah, so I think the tokenization conversation, I think there's a couple of layers from an infrastructure perspective. Of course, there's the tokenization aspect of tokenization. And I think, to your point, tokenization is potentially the hot word Larry Fink and others have spoken extensively around the values that they see, at least in tokenization. I think there's a couple of layers. One is tokenization as a tokenization engines, if you want to call it. Tokenization everything from real world assets to other financial products. So there's a whole gamut. I think the second piece is how do you interact with those tokenized infrastructure? Private blockchains, I think, is just an alternative ledger system. But if you really build on a public infrastructure, you need to be able to interact from a payment mechanism with that infrastructure. And that's where you need to bridge the two worlds. Now, that's not to say that the customer, for example, needs to think about this in the same way that when I send money, I don't think about necessarily what is actually happening. In the same way, when I access the internet, do I really understand what HTTP means? Sure, some people do. They love that. But to the customer user. So to benefit from tokenization, let's say that you solve the tokenization point, to then access that tokenized assets in a way that abstracts away the complexity, but gets the benefits of interacting, for example, with a smart contract, there's things that need to be built. And I think that's largely around payments. And again, using cryptography as an alternative payment mechanism that gives access to tokenized assets with smart contracts and other functionality. And I think that's the key point. In the same way, if you look at, for example, our integration with Stripe, so Stripe built infrastructure, and it's a little different to tokenization, but I think that's maybe part of the story. If you think about groups that are tokenizing, it could be anything, right? It could be Nike, for example, thinking about a tokenized proof of origin linked to a sneaker. How do you interact with that NFT? How do you interact with fractionalized assets, payments, but abstracting away that complexity? So I may, for example, want to buy a tokenized asset. There's groups out there. The Benji token, I think, from Franklin Templeton is particularly interesting. But how do you get it in a way that I don't need to think about, okay, I now need to get my USD converted to USDC. Do I need to think about, okay, do I need to put anything into the contract? It's abstracting away that complexity. I think the tokenization engine piece, I think is certainly something that needs to be done more of. I think there's different chains, multi-chain, bridging. There's a whole host of things that need to be solved there, which I think a lot of providers, including us, are very far along on. But I think the payments piece is often not actually understood as well as the core tokenization. So think of that all the way through the use case of the tokenization angle. Sometimes I give the example of, for example, Taylor Swift. If you look at what happened with Ticketmaster, right? Congress is talking about Ticketmaster. If you think about, okay, this is one use case. What happens if you could tokenize her tickets. If you think about that journey, you have to tokenize the ticket, you have to be able to pay for that ticket, and then you have to be able to store that ticket. And all of that, you have to abstract away the complexity. So those will be the three buckets in tokenization that I think are the key areas from an infrastructure perspective. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that one. And just because I've talked to the Ticketmaster team before, some people there, I don't know if it was Taylor or a different one, but the funny thing about that problem, not that payments isn't interesting, I think if you showed someone an NFT, it's a very obvious example of this should be a ticket. You can own it. Oh, wouldn't that be great? It's something insane, like 1.8 billion addresses hit that server at that moment in time. The notion that any blockchain could stand up to the weight of what Ticketmaster does at this point in time, I think is laughable. Doesn't mean I don't want to get there, and I think we will. But it's also like one of these people go to the end conclusion without you made a point of, 
no one ever thinks about how that works. For some reason, I love to try to figure out how shit works. Mm-hmm. And when you dive into it, that's a huge system to maintain. So it's pre-assuming that you could actually put this on chain in the first place. I don't disagree with you at all. I think, again, it's not to say that we're there yet. And I think there's multiple people trying to solve this from a technological perspective. And let's just be clear, Ticketmaster has not solved that problem. I think those numbers that we're talking about, they sound high, but let's think about high frequency algorithmic trading. So what I think Jump Crypto, for example, working on Firedancer, which is a validator client for Solana, you've got some of the brightest minds, some of the brightest high throughput engineers that you can imagine. Super high frequency trading is very complex and very high throughput. And then you're applying that to Solana. Yes, I'm sure that potentially Jump is thinking of this from a tradable infrastructure. But by solving that problem, you also solve the throughput challenge as well and the latency challenges that you can face, which can then be applied to other use cases where there are these bursts of activity that is needed to be solved as well. So I don't disagree with you. There's work that needs to be done. But I think there are really interesting applications by really smart people that have solved these challenges in other business lines applying this to some of the, I would say, constraints that different crypto chains have today. I want to go back to the Benji token because we had guys from Wisdom Tree on as Mm -hmm. well talking about tokens. I think you're probably a good person to ask because it felt like half of the conversation was we have this regulatory sandbox we don't feel comfortable in. We want to tokenize our funds or our assets. It seems that they have a fund and then they have a token, but the token can't go anywhere. So it's got to stay here. But it felt like that was more regulatory risk. Correct me if I'm wrong there. And then I think what you're going to get to is that let's just assume we're going to solve the regulatory risk and this stuff starts to move around such that you could send me a Benji token instead of just sending me USD. Walk me through how that would happen and why it doesn't happen today. I don't want to talk to Wisdom Tree or Franklin Templeton, but I think these are all phased approaches. Sometimes people pick holes in what exists today and what can exist tomorrow. I think there's a couple of different pieces here. With sending assets on chain, there's always a concern about who you are sending them to. Now, my counter to that is always look at what's being done with, for example, the travel rule in the US. The obligations now that people have around effectively when you send, again, all of this is public on public chains, knowing between one regulated business to another regulated business, the reporting of who is sending and who is receiving. And it's a complex thing. So I think there's work being done on that. There's not a statement on whether this is a good thing or bad thing. It's more that they are solving the concerns or that infrastructure solving the concerns of that that exists today. I think it's about if you can't move things, what is the value of tokenization? I think is a valid question to ask. But again, it's about phasing and trying to take things in incremental steps, but not forgetting the broader vision that exists there. Let's just assume that the reason why we haven't moved out of phase one is because there's some regulatory concerns about moving stuff. Assume that we get past that. So now it can move. How and why would people move assets in this way? In terms of different assets, one is that it can be quicker, easier. If you ever try to move your brokerage account from one broker to another, there's a process called ACATS. It's not that easy and it's not cheap. If you want to think about real-world assets, the role that intermediaries play is huge. So the removal of an intermediary. So let's think about a house, for example. You're losing a couple of percent to brokers, middle people. Now, how does that change? How does that evolve? It's a broad range of examples, because I think it's really important that, look, not all of these examples may work, may not exist, but the, the breadth of application is broad. If you look at the breakdown of StockX's business that comes from Nike sneakers, it's very large. And why do you need that middle person? It's authentication. 
But imagine if you have an authentication tied to a sneaker, tied to an NFT, and then the transfer of ownership can happen on chain. You no longer need that intermediary. And guess what? That intermediary is just a cost, but also the creator isn't getting paid for the accretion of value. And so somebody gave me an example. He actually had his daughter explain NFTs to a table, and this daughter was 10 years old. And he said, what's the value of NFTs? And she said, the value of the NFT is that when you're an artist, you get paid once today. When an NFT, you get paid every single time. And so the value is around the alignment of economic incentives over time. It's around the reducing friction and reducing cost amongst other potential applications and problems that can be solved. Again, probably phase approach, because I was also amped up about that originally too with the artist thing, but then we got rid of royalties and quickly ruined that example. Technologies can be misused, misapplied. It's not that this is a panacea for human nature, but I think that there are application use cases and stories that I get in I mean, if you just think of what we said, Wisdom Tree, Franklin Templeton, if you just type in tokenization, it's a huge gamut, a whole application. These large institutions are looking at this and they've perceived value that can be created, even if it's from a defensive posture position. That's still a good thing. Yeah, no, I definitely think there's a tremendous opportunity to use some of this technology. And I agree. I'm all for it's fun to just push back on someone because you're so optimistic on it. And I'm usually on the other side of I just want to experiment as much as possible and try as many things as take as many risks as we can, because that's yep. how we're going to figure out what works or not. And if everyone just sits around and says, that's how we've done it for 30 years, it's the worst thing. We're never going to get any progress. Oh, 100%. Look, I call myself a highly skeptical optimist. But look, I think there are, in terms of the evolution of the market, we're not talking about price so much, right? You haven't asked me a question about price today. We're asking about fundamental use cases. Again, crypto has not evolved to enough use cases. I think what really excites me is that the utility, the fundamental story, and again, crypto needs to tell that story. How does cryptography as a technology move the business forward? AI has done a pretty good job of doing that. Right now, AI is used by people largely to do their homework, to do their job more, to create dumb photos. I've done that myself. But there's enough of a story there about how AI can increase human existence. But and also AI leaders have done a pretty good job of saying, but there are risks. Crypto has not done that. Crypto leaders have not done that. And that's largely, I think, frankly, because the media has selected what they term to be crypto leaders and have chosen people that have not been great representatives of the crypto space. And that's the fundamental point. Yes, I'm optimistic about pieces. I talk about the good use cases, but there's still a lot that needs to be done. And the industry as a whole needs to be better at one, solving these challenges and actually focusing on application and two, telling a more compelling story around that. Yeah, I think it's a tough balance because let's rewind before crypto, before Bitcoin and before even there's talk of digital money, but Nobody cares about DTCC and payment and clearinghouse. I couldn't sell you a ticket to come visit me and say, let's go talk about what makes the pipes go, right? That's not a sexy business. And so the technology and then just the sheer amount of money is what got everyone's attention. The problem to me is cutting through that noise. Even AI is going to have this problem. If you yep. promise people all this stuff and then you don't deliver in some way that meaningful really changes. It sets the industry up to be like, what can you actually deliver? So this is where the narrative of the storytelling comes up. So let's keep going down the storytelling with, with what you guys are doing. So we talked about payments, talked about tokenized assets. Let's talk about payroll, global payroll of how you involve companies like that. 
Yeah, so look, I think there's a couple of applications. One is, for example, crypto payouts. And there's pretty well trodden, actually, I think groups like Deal, for example, put out reports around the quantity of payouts they do in crypto today. We're a customer of Deal. If you actually try to do it, there's multiple steps. It can definitely be streamlined. But there's, I would say, a crypto payouts mechanism. There are people who want to be paid out in crypto for a bunch of different reasons. Why would someone want to be paid in crypto? The primary reason is if you're based in Argentina or certain parts of the world, as soon as you get paid tomorrow, the value of what you've just received has decreased. I think there's a lot that needs to be done as well around, this is not to say, again, this is a panacea, but right now, every business is effectively built with credit lines from people. So even in your own business, when are you paid? You're paid two weeks, a month in arrears. Done the work. Now, we often forget that we're in fortunate positions where that's fine. But what happens if you're right on the edge? If you're based, for example, I don't know, in the Philippines, and there's actually a lot of Americans as well. If you actually look at the fundamental stats, the number of Americans who a $1,000 unexpected expense can cause material issues. So it's not just talking about areas like the Philippines or other parts of the world. It can be a story in the US. But getting paid more quickly, this whole payday loan piece that exists, it's expensive to move money today. But imagine if you could effectively stream your wage. So you get paid every single day. It's just streamed. It's a smart contract. It's really quick. It's really cheap. So if you reduce the cost of payments, you could do a lot. And businesses are now no longer basically getting a credit line from their own employees. And that's a really powerful use case of cryptography. And then the third bucket, I would say, would be around leveraging crypto as a mechanism to transfer value across border. And there's a lot of work that's been done. Obviously, Ripple XRP talks about this a lot. I don't think that's the only way to do that. If you look at what's happening, for example, with Lightning, how you can quickly move value cross-border. And again, thinking of crypto more as a network of networks to move money cross-border. And maybe potentially the end receiver doesn't even know that the asset's been moved through crypto. But in the same way that if you're, for example, in the UK and I send money to my family or friends in the UK, do I really know how many banks it hops through? Yes, I do, because it costs a lot of money. But I know I'm sending dollars and that person in the UK knows that they're receiving pounds. So I would say those are the three buckets in terms of how payroll, again, there's big use cases where it doesn't apply. But if you actually fundamentally look at those three use cases from a, I would say, a non-privileged, non-US viewpoint, it becomes immediately apparent in terms of how value can be created for individuals through the use of this technology. You guys are working on a lot of cool stuff and you have a big company and it seems to be going in a good direction. You can't solve all the problems. From a perspective of what do you want to see more investment in this space and more focus on? Where would you put or believe the marginal dollars should go? Yeah, so I saw a report yesterday that there's more dollars flowing into crypto companies again than has been, I think, in nine months or something. I don't necessarily think more money solves all problems. Necessity is the mother of all creation. We're an infrastructure play. When I talk about some of these use cases, we're providing the infrastructure to make it really easy to do that. But ultimately, it comes from groups that have distribution, have other infrastructure that needs to be put together. We think we're a really important base layer for growth. That said, to be able to answer your question, I think things around account abstraction that can be done. I think actually using smart contracts to replicate what exists in the current payments world is really interesting. So I'll give you a use case again. Netflix. Do I really want to have to do push payments to Netflix every single time I need to pay them on a monthly basis? No. But through account abstraction and other mechanisms, you can do pull payments, for example, potentially. So 
I think that's the investment that's needed is around, I would say, product parity, product equivalency. Because if it's difficult to use, it doesn't matter if it's cheaper, better, or whatever else. To some degree, it's just a friction. So I think that's where investment has to come, which is let's get product parity in large areas, especially in the payments use case, the application, and move that conversation forward. Yeah, that's a really great point. It's such a different framing that I felt was hard in the run-up because you're like, I always had this view of, I want to experiment and play. And that when I saw the first tech boom, everyone was like, don't go to Silicon Valley, don't go west. It was all broken by the time we're getting out of college. But there was a lot of people there that knew the difference, who knew that which companies were in trouble and where real builders were and who was working on stuff. But mm-hmm. the hype and the narrative, it doesn't go to those people. It goes to the people who have the mm-hmm. biggest stories, the most salacious. That's what gets the headlines and the clicks, unfortunately. But yeah. you can see clearly crypto is an absolute case study and losing control of that, upsetting the government, being at odds, just causing such intensity on both sides that resetting the bar to say, look, we want to try to build stuff that gets us to a level of parity to just say when people are like, oh, it's better than Visa. And then someone who knows how Visa works goes, you're not even on the first base of Visa. So don't Mm -hmm. say you're going to be better. I understand that's possible and that's very aspirational, but I want to talk to people that are actually building base one, two, and three to get there. So I think that's super interesting. I think when we think about, for example, the remittance use case, I think it's about focusing on a particular corridor for example, where you see particular value. Yes, of course, you want this to be the dominant remittance mechanism globally, but you have to pick and prove and iterate from there. And that's where we're particularly focused. And the payments use case, you called me optimistic. We're learning lessons. Our partners are learning lessons. Shift 4 is learning lessons. Stripe's learning lessons in terms of how you build a product that actually gives you the benefits of this technology, but with the things that are needed, necessary product parity to the existing infrastructure today. It's been a lot of fun and and you have made me more optimistic about the outlook of what is being built in the space. And so we end these interviews with trying to figure out where we are in the cycle. So for you, thinking about it, not necessarily the general economic cycle, but where we are in crypto cycle. Yeah, absolutely. So before you call me an optimist, I think the challenge in this space is that the cycle periods are very short. And they move very quickly. And I always say that this is actually the fundamental thing in terms of you spoke about investment. This is my core tenet for our team is to narrow the emotional bounds of building in this space. So the cycle will move back and forth, but don't get caught up in the froth and don't become overly fearful in the downtime. So I think that's a fundamental piece around cycles. I think in terms of where we are today, I think we're in the hope period. I think there are e sprouts that have been watered. I think the conversation has evolved. We sometimes forget. It's almost like you have to correct yourself. Wow, Bitcoin's at an 18-month high, and yet the emotion around the space isn't at an 18-month high. I think that's a good thing. We've decoupled to some degree from price. I've spoken about some of these vision, hope, but I think a lot of this is also tangible. And I've given some real use cases. There's some things I can't talk about, which will be public over the coming months which I think will actually make a little bit more tangible some of these points. Awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing the announcements. Edward, thank you for your time today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.